This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. If you were listening to the show a couple of weeks ago, you might recall our interview with Julian Burnside QC, where we discussed a whole range of issues in relation to the effectiveness or otherwise of our justice system. One of the issues we touched on in that interview was the lack of a Charter of Human Rights in Australia and the effect it might have if such a charter were introduced. Another prominent advocate for this is Professor George Williams. He's currently the Dean at the Faculty of Law in University of New South Wales and has over the years appeared as a barrister in the High Court in many cases as well as writing and editing some 35 books his latest is an updated version of his 2007 title a charter of rights for australia and george george joins us today on the line welcome to triple r pleasure so Australia is uh, actually the only democratic nation in the world without a formal Charter of Rights, as you write in your book. How is it that we've uh, not so far been uh, able to introduce one? Well, we certainly are exceptional in this regard, and uh, it's not from want of trying. Uh, it was something that was attempted in the 40s. The Whitlam government tried it in the 70s. The Hawke government put a bill into Parliament in the 80s. Uh, the Rudd government had a massive consultation over 2009, which involved about 40,000 Australians, the biggest in Australia's history, and it showed overwhelming support for giving better protection to people's rights from government. But on each occasion, what we saw is mismanagement, and uh, in the last instance, the Rudd government, um, it basically imploded at the time that it might have been pursuing this and at the same time it dropped its commitment to climate change uh, redress. It also dropped its commitment to better protecting human rights for Australians. So it's, there's no good reason except to say we, we just haven't got our act together to get it done as other countries have. And, I mean, there, there might be that aspect to it, but is there also a, a really strong public demand for this, do you think, or do you think um, politicians think that it's kind of a second or third tier issue? Well, there's certainly a strong public demand for, for certain rights. I mean, free speech has been very much in the media over recent years, but you only have to talk to people who bear the harsh end of some of our laws, whether it be Aboriginal peoples, asylum seekers, a, a long list to know that they do want the system improved. But when it comes to the general public, one of the tough things is that the demand is not there, in part because they already think we have a Bill of Rights. And one survey a couple of years ago asked Australians, um, do we have a National Bill of Rights? 61% said yes. They think we've already got it. So They think we're we America, got... maybe. Well, it is. I mean, I've seen this directly. When I was in Victoria a couple of years ago talking down there, I had many people who said, we've got a National Bill of Rights. So I said, what's in it? And what often came up is they said they know they can take the fifth, which is the Fifth Amendment to the US Constitution if they're in trouble in court. And uh, that's a big part of this story, that uh, Australians just don't know much about how their system works. It's interesting, isn't it? I was reminded when reading your book um, around that time of the, the consultations in 2009 that the Rudd government embarked on and eventually decided to not introduce a Charter of Rights. Uh, Bob Carr then praised the Rudd government's rejection and said that um, we instead can trust in the ethos of a country and the spirit of a people to ensure that rights are protected. And it kind of speaks to a, a fairly laissez-faire, loose kind of attitude towards the, um, the ability and extent to which we do protect human rights in Australia. 
Well, it does. And uh, uh, Bob Carr is certainly a very vocal opponent of any of this sort of better protection of human rights. His view is that uh, these matters should be left entirely to our parliamentarians. They should be free to make what laws they want and we should trust them, essentially, to protect our human rights. Uh, you know, my response to that is I, I don't think the public record bears out that that has happened. There are, there are too many examples of groups in our community who have not been treated fairly, um, not just prominent groups, but there's problems in aged care, kids with disabilities, a, a long range, and I don't think it's good enough to say that uh, problems with the current system should be left to continue. And uh, as you um, mentioned earlier, that I'm sure if surveyed, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders would know that we don't have such a thing, and there is calls for a First Nations Assembly and all sorts of different um, uh, approaches to the way that we can better recognise but also ensure more rights to our First Peoples in Australia. And I wonder, do you think that process is going to kind of educate the rest of us? I hope it is. And, of course, we've been in this long process of recognising Aboriginal people in the Constitution, which has run for the best part of a decade. And part of that is, uh, is dealing with their human rights. And they're particularly vulnerable as a group because the Australian Constitution still has a clause in it that says that um, they or, indeed, any person can be discriminated against on the basis of their race. They can be denied employment in certain areas. All the things we thought were just part of our history are still in the Constitution. And, in fact, as far as I know, we're the only nation in the world now that still has uh, an authorisation in it that uh, our parliaments can make laws that disadvantage people because of the colour of their skin. And as well as, I guess, wanting to, to retain the, the ability and the power in parliament to, um, to create laws and, and pass legislation, uh, you know, on their own terms, essentially, I wonder also what some of the motivations for, for governments not wanting to introduce a Charter of Rights. We saw earlier this year a um, significant class action settlement with um, asylum seekers who'd been detained on, on Manus Island. And I wonder if some parliamentarians or MPs are concerned that introducing a, a human rights charter or Bill of Rights might open them up to, to litigation. Yeah, I think that's certainly one of the factors here. Um, one of them is they just don't want their power to be fettered. Um, but another is, yes, that if you have one of these instruments, then there is the possibility that an independent umpire, a court, could be involved. Um, if a government trespasses on someone's rights, a court may be able to intervene to stop that happening. And uh, if you look at the Victorian Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities, which is the first of these instruments in a state, it's had that effect. There are many examples of where uh, governments may have pitched people out of public housing with their kids into homelessness or where kids were not being given a proper education because their disability was not being recognised or, or many, many others that shows that these things can make a difference and they can tilt the balance more in favour of those who might be getting a bad deal from government. Is it important, um, you just mentioned rights and responsibilities there in the Victorian uh, version of, of a um, Charter of Rights, is the word responsibility important do you think? Yeah, I think it is. And I think for many Australians, they look at this through the lens of responsibilities, that um, for some it's a more powerful way of understanding the sort of community we live in and, and what we should be suggesting is important here. And, and human rights are always about responsibilities. It's about the responsibility to respect another person's religious beliefs or to uh, be tolerant uh, of somebody's views, even if you strongly disagree with them. And so they're just two sides of the same coin. 
If you just tuned in, we're speaking with George Williams. He's a professor and dean of law at the uh, University of New South Wales, and we're talking all about his book, A Charter of Rights for Australia, which is an updated edition of uh, the original version, which came out back in 2007. And, and you do spend quite a bit of time detailing the Victorian experience with A Charter of Rights and also um, the ACT's experience with a, with a similar thing that was introduced um, in that particular territory. Have, have these worked as, as effective? as we would hope them to? Yeah, I mean, there have been independent reviews of both now and uh, and the debate is very different from where it was a decade ago because both of these charters have been in place for that decade so we have very solid evidence of what's happened. And what we've learned is that there hasn't been much litigation um, so it hasn't led to lots of people going to court. Where it has really made a difference is in how governments make decisions. It's headed off problems. Governments have not passed laws in the first place that raise human rights problems. Um, government departments in delivering health, education... And other services, particularly to vulnerable people, have been more mindful of those people and to treat them fairly. And uh, you would say, look, it's making a slow but positive difference to how the government treats the most vulnerable people in the community. You couldn't say that it's anything like the US Bill of Rights, which has had a more explosive impact, big litigation, quite expensive. These models are really about prevention and about shaping what governments do at the beginning, not pushing people into court. And so, yes, the independent review have said they have been successful but there's still a long journey because uh, there's no easy solutions or quick solutions to some of these problems because they often depend not just on the laws but leadership and cultures and other surrounding factors. If we had uh, a, a Charter of Rights for Australia at, that, at the federal level uh, and as you say um, this is a often used as a, a preventative measure, would we have the kind of refugee and asylum seeker policies and, and setups that we do at the moment do you think George or would that have been quite a different outcome? Well, it's, it's, it's hard to unpick these things, of course, now, because we've, we've gone down such a, a difficult and awful path um, on these measures that to ask well, how things might have been different all those years ago, I, I hope it would have made a difference because it would have reminded parliamentarians very clearly how some of these laws breach these basic standards. It would have also given people um, treated unfairly or wrongfully um, new abilities to challenge that. And uh, I think that could have been effective in blunting some of the worst uh, problems and, and maybe even changing course. But I, I don't want to overstate this too much, partly because we shouldn't say that any one law can change everything. Sometimes the politics in an area like asylum seekers or terrorism is so powerful that no legal instrument's going to completely change the outcome. Um, and that's where what you need is you need the right laws, but critically you need the right leadership, you need the right community support. And when you have all of those things, that's when you can get the best change. And um, as I understand it, George, in introducing a Charter of Rights would not involve a referendum necessarily. Do you see there much being much appetite for introducing a Charter of Rights in Australia? Obviously, if it was enshrined in the Constitution, we would need to go to a referendum. And it seems at this stage we're talking about a potential referendum for a republic and also for constitutional recognition of, of the first Australian. So that seems it might be a bigger challenge than, than a Charter of Rights. Yeah, look, the referendum list is quite long at the moment. You can also add reforming the dual citizenship provisions in Section 44. Um, we could uh, add a post postal survey in there. 
Well, we could, and uh, Bill Shorten said are a public and fixed four-year terms, and uh, the good thing about a charter is you don't need any of those things. I, I think legislation is the right way to go. It's just an ordinary act of Parliament. It does improve protection, but it can also be changed. So if we decide, well, this is the first base of the charter, but we want to improve it over time, well, that gives a way of doing it. And, in fact, the ACT is a good example with the Human Rights Act. has been amended several times since it was passed in 2004 to fix some issues and expand the coverage into areas like education, and it's a better model and approach. And uh, while we've got you, George, um, I just want to change track briefly. And uh, Carly did just mention the postal survey on, on same-sex marriage, which is uh, slated to happen sometime in, in the very near future. And I, I know you've been commenting on this publicly and voiced uh, doubts about the process and said the government may even run into legal troubles leading to a potential challenge in the High Court. How do you see all this playing out? Well, it, it will be looked at in the High Court very soon, in early September, 5 and 6 September. And uh, I think, look, there's clearly good arguments that can be put both for upholding and for striking down um, the plebiscite. It could go either way. Um, I think there's a real chance the High Court will strike it down, in which case the government is back to square one. But this is going to be a legal mess. Uh, and even if it's upheld, there may be further challenges on other grounds. So we've got a, we've got a poll that I think is quite problematic and very expensive and uh, I think it's going to be mined in the courts for some time. Yeah, watch this space. Wait and see. We will. <laughs> Thanks so much, George, for your time today. My pleasure. That's George Williams, a professor and dean of law at the University of New South Wales, talking all about his book, A Charter of Rights for Australia, which is uh, available now through, uh, it's a new edition available now through University of New South Wales Press. And it's a very um, readable book, actually. It's um, not dense at all. It's more like novel format. So if you're interested in these issues and uh, and you're not into legal textbooks, it's certainly not one of those. Uh, Sally Rippon joins us monthly. She is a best-selling children's book author and illustrator, of course, and uh, likes to come in and talk, bring her favourite people to Triple R, and it's great to have you, Sally. We missed you last week for Radiothon. I know, but I did listen in and was really thrilled to hear such lovely things said about me. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I, do, I didn't hold back, did I? It was good. I thought if I'd been in the station, they never would have said that. Good thing I didn't turn up. That's why we kept you away. <laughs> Wanted to be nice. Yeah. <laughs> Ears were burning, and uh, of course, every month uh, you bring in your um, favourite people, really. And today we have Judy Horridge check with us. She's a much-loved cartoonist. She's put out her ninth collection of cartoons, which we're going to talk about today. It's called Random Life. Uh, but of course, she's collaborated with Mem Fox and others on children's books. Where is the Green Sheep is the one that uh, gets read everywhere all the time and as well as many other stories for children. This book's been released with a Ford by John Clark and it's just a beautiful book. Congratulations, Thank you. Judy, and Thank thanks you. for coming in. Oh, you're welcome. And I suppose, I mean, your um, uh, illust- like your cartoons, my, my kids straight away picked this up and went, oh, I want to read that. But it does cut across both children and adults. The style is very and children clever engaging. Children They can pick up the visual style. I'm always so impressed when they do that. They just that. can. Yeah, they, know, yeah. they know that there's stuff in there for them. And uh, But there's also, you know, you deal with, in a very beautiful way, also very challenging issues from asylum seekers. And, but yeah, you so this also, book isn't yeah. really for children. No. But, you know, I have heard tales of children sitting there and reading it, you know, sounding out the words and stuff with my cartoons. But um, So hopefully it doesn't scare them too much with telling about the horrible things that are going on in the world. <laughs> And the lovely things too. You know, there's a lot of beautiful things. And there's something very appealing about your illustrations that even when you are dealing with something quite dark and complex, there's a whimsy or there's a, there's a kind of humour 
throughout it that I think children would connect to in the way that they do with your book illustrations Yeah, as well. Well, I'm trying to keep an optimism often in the cartoons, not in every single cartoon, but overall that, that, you know, there's a sense that, you know, we can make the world better. Like Triple R, that's why Triple R's here. <laughs> <laughs> the same kind of aesthetic. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, well, I loved um, actually in this. I mean, we can pick. It's hard to talk about cartoons on the radio, I suppose, in some ways. But there is a sheep in there, and it's got little at symbols all over it. And it, if, to the untrained eye, it does just look like the curls of wool. But uh, I mean, technology seems to be a strong theme in your recent work. Yeah, so that's work. the email sheep yeah. with the with the curls. But that's also a reference to. I've been doing a number of cartoons about sheep because I'm just kind of the little in jokes for me as well as the you know where is the green salad joke in in the book, which is you know where is the green sheep reference. It's, um, yeah, technology. I mean, it's such a huge part of our lives now and it's such a uh, fertile field for taking the mickey out of um, the way we're all chained to our devices and the way, you know, we have 150 different ways we have to tell the world about every single thing we're doing. So, um, and I'm guilty of it. I'm not, you know, doing this new age turn off your devices thing in my cartoons. I wish I could, but, you know. And as a creator, I guess that I do certainly myself find that as a challenge because I find I read less now that I'm on social media that I'm always jumping online and reading short articles online, but I'm, I'm finding it hard to engage and really connect my brain to the, to the work that it takes to, to read a novel. And so I'm, I have to switch off to be able to read a novel. Do you find that the influx of technology and, and you are quite present on, on technology and social media, you have a newsletter. Do you find that's affecting the way that you're able to? Yeah, I think it's a very uncreative space, really, that, Mm. that online thing. And it's a very unintellectual space in a way. You know, you look at an article, I'm very interested in such and such a topic and you read the first couple of lines of it and you go, yeah, you know, and then you flick onto something Mm. else. And that's. I know what the rest says. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm always, I'll read it later. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll absorb all that later. So Mm. it's a, for me, um, it's often a deferred thing that, you know, oh, I will learn that, that's important, I'd like to do work about it, but I'm not actually doing any work about it or processing it at all. Um, I think, I don't know, it, I think that will get better. I mean, it might be our brains, our you know, the old, the way our brains have been used to working and they'll be evolving in, a, in an incredibly fast, non-Darwinian fashion, tung, 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 mm. and people will get better at absorbing that or else we'll just all stay very shallow and superficial and self-absorbed creatures. That's the other possibility. <laughs> <laughs> but, but given the, the kind of instant and, and the fact that social media is, you know, people share articles all the time and it, it seems like it's a very, um, kind of goes well with, with cartoons it's you can get a point across quite quickly you can get it across visually has that changed or is that interacting with with cartoons in in the way that it potentially could well it's kind of both there's i haven't found any way to earn any money from cartoons on the internet so there's that problem and that's a problem for a lot of creatives on the internet you you can get quite a big audience and still not um do you know still not have any money you hear about bands who have millions and millions of followers and when they tour they're sleeping on people's couches and Mm. well that's so something not working. So you're there. appreciated, but yeah, the the actual making a living aspect of it is still a mystery sometimes. Yeah, mm. yeah. So I don't know what's going to happen. Of cartoons, also, I think relate to me. They relate very much to that the media cycle we used to have, which was where the newspaper came out, and that was that sort of fixed the information at that point in time. So that you would do a cartoon summing up something at that point in time, the editorial cartoons that appear in the newspapers. Um, and then now it's sort of because it gets updated all the time, and you can't really update a cartoon because the cartoon is is its own little self-contained universe. So you can't sort of tweak it very much. Um, maybe you could add a few more politicians on the queue of politicians with dual nationality <laughs> and just, you know, can make it keep keep sticking them on. But um, it's a different... I'm not sure what will happen with cartoons. I think the spirit of cartoons, that sort of 
larrikin, to use a very overused word, and that sort of um, way of making political comment, that, that, will, that will still happen and that will still be there, but I'm not sure what will happen. And it's with, I find it interesting, a lot of my cartoons get retweeted, but now things are retweeted without names on them often mm. because you have mm. memes, and memes are essentially authorless. Obviously, somebody's made them somewhere down the track, but it's not important to anyone to sort of acknowledge any author, mm. and people are seeing cartoons like that. So they're just putting them out there, and then, you know, when you say, well, could you just put my, you know... Um, name or something in there, they go, well, I thought you'd just be pleased that I'm publicising your work. <laughs> yeah, well, yes and no, you well, know. And also, I mean, of- you're, I mean, fortunately, I suppose for, for you, Judy, and people should attribute, by the way, um, but you're, you have a very distinctive style. So I, I, I think people know your work and know your style and perhaps yet don't know it's you, don't know your name even, but your yeah. style does really, uh, you can tie your work together with that. Is that was that ever deliberate or it's just how... It's a thing that cartoonists have, you know, you have a style, that's one thing if you sort of start investigating being a cartoonist, they say, develop your own personal style and recognisable work and it wasn't something I, I just practised but I didn't ever say, well my character is going to have a really pointy nose and a tiny eye, I don't know why, you know, if I'd thought about it I would have said an eye with an eyeball and everything so it's much more expression possible because when you've only got (laughs) this tiny little dot that you can get i mean it's amazing how you can move it three mil and it changes the expression on the face but nonetheless you know eyebrows would have been handy at some point. <laughs> so you're stuck with what you came up with when you came out of um uni that was your style when you st- you so you started cartooning and came up with a style and you've kept pretty much to that throughout your cartooning life Pretty much. It has developed. Once When I started, I often had the second eyeball outside the nose and I've stopped doing that because I started finding it disconcerting. Back then I thought it was really interesting, but now I was like, oh, there's a floating eyeball outside there. <laughs> well, it's just like the Triple R Studios at the moment with all your... We um, have floating eyeballs. Floating eyeballs, <laughs> yeah. skulls, yeah. severed limbs everywhere. Yeah. And, and you talked about how, you know, in a, in a newspaper, and a lot of the work in this um, new collection um, has been published uh, elsewhere and prior. How do you know which ones are going to stand on their own outside the context of the news of the day, that particular um, snapshot well, because in time. My space, so I'm published twice a week now in The Age um, and my space is down, it's not in the front, which is where the sort of news news is. It's it's next to the quiz and under the weather. And um, so I always do cartoons that sort of do stand. So it's not something about, unless, unless I'm absolutely provoked, like Tony Abbott would absolutely provoke me. So I would do cartoons about something that he had said or done um and um but mostly i do because for me what the horribleness and evilness of the politicians we have isn't limited it's not a particular personality you know Mm. if you get rid of well you can see that all the stuff about the environment we've had this constant you know stream of people prime ministers swapping and you know the environment and refugee issues they're all equally bad on it so my cartoons i think i try to get to the underlying idea of it rather than just you know malcolm turnbull's horrible about refugees i mean Mm. so is everybody else it's just you know um awful so there are a lot of cartoons in there about asylum seekers and refugees because i just think we're in you know an incredibly appalling place in this country i can't believe you know in 20 years well, hopefully less than that, we're going to look back and go, what the hell are we mm. thinking, you know? Mm. Look at these parallels with the beginning of the Nazi regime in Germany where the demonising of a particular race, the um, t- not lack of taking responsibility for people who were fleeing persecution and possible death and just sort of going, oh, well, it's not, it's not us. You know, it reminds me of back before World War II, there was a 
a boatload of Jewish people trying to escape from Europe and they just went from place to place to place and nobody would let them land and nobody would take responsibility for it. And I grew up in a world where we would think that is awful, that must never happen again and suddenly and now we're in a world where that is happening Mm. and I think... And people are holding up Nazi flags and being proud of it. Yeah, Mm, happy times. Scary. I mean, given you've been been at this so long, I imagine it's kind of second nature to be interpreting news through the lens of cartoons. But do you find it, it difficult to kind of to switch off to not see a headline on any particular day and and not go, oh, how can I make that into something that's kind of cartoony and you know potentially quirky or quite dark? <laughs> well, um, it probably is hard to. Um, it's not that I see a headline and I think, how will, will I do that? But it's just I am, you know, I do. Well, I have deadlines and I have to fill them with something. So that's one thing. So, you know, creative people are always looking around for ideas. You must find that, Sally, that mm. you never really, oh, I'm on holiday, I'm lying on the beach. Oh, here's an idea. I won't write it down because I'm on holiday. <laughs> you know, it's just... Um, oh, we were talking about the opposite earlier where you're wandering around um, as, as an artist saying, oh, well, there's no point in me sitting at my desk. I don't have an idea. Don't where have so an idea. much of it is just turning up to the desk. Yeah, it? turning up to your desk. So we were saying that the person who sits around waiting for an idea is always called an amateur, you know, rather than... Um, so you do it the sort of it comes from both of those things but yeah. i did you know because because i like in my work to not always because there's a lot of stuff in random life there's just random mm. for want of a better <laughs> word just really silly stuff there's uh, you know the zebra that um that stripes have all run together and the zebra saying to the other zebra oh um i never knew i was dry clean only and um <laughs> and the email sheep obviously that's not particularly political but there's yeah, I do. It's commentary. Um, oh, there's quite a few in there that I really like. That, I mean, he, that there's one where the dog's barking up the wrong tree, the cat's in the other tree, and, you know, oh, yeah. I hate to much point it out I, to you. you <laughs> what was it? Much as I hate to use cliches, I think that's the wrong tree you're barking at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It gets a smile out of me. And um, actually the one that really stands out in this is the, um, the FOI request noughts and crosses game. And there's like every other line is blanked out and no one can ever win you know it's just <laughs> but it is there is a comment there about the amount of information that we can be provided or are being provided by our governments yeah absolutely that's mm. um who gets to decide what we get to know well we get to know nothing now mm. <laughs> so working on cartoons is, is something that you turn up to your desk it's very much your idea your view of the world and but you collaborate as well and um how closely do you is it just mem fox that you've illustrated for or have you illustrated for other i um did a book writers. with doug mcleod at one mm. stage a book called the night before mother's day so the, which is a poem he wrote about a mother dreading mother's day because it would mean having to eat burnt toast and um <laughs> So how is that different for you, just where you come up with quite a, often a political cartoon, um, your idea, your little vision in one illustration as, as opposed to taking someone else's words and vision and creating a whole illustrative story around that? What's, what's the process for you? Well, there's been a few different processes. So the only, apart from Doug McLeod, so I just had that poem there and I just, you know, came up with pictures and um, with Mem, it's much more collaborative. Not that we sit in a room and, and yak away and throw around ideas, but the green sheep, which was our first one, came about because I'd done an etching of a green sheep that she was intrigued by and fell in love with that little character. And there were lots of other characters. There was a purple dog and an orange something that's not normally orange. I was going to say duck, but that's not. Anyway, all these other animals that were random colours, um, that word again. And um, 
she fell in love with it and she said well you should write a children's book about it and I said well why don't we work on it together so she came up with the format and then we came up with the various sheep that are in there the bath sheep the bed sheep the blue sheep the red sheep and there's a rhyming pattern and there's patterns of um of related sheep and opposite sheep and all of that so once that pattern was there we were just you know faxing back in the day um (laughs) and emailing sheep backwards and forwards so she'd suggest sheep and i would draw them up if i liked them and i would just pretend i hadn't seen them if i didn't think they were very interesting and um and i was suggesting sheep as well so the near and the far which is still my favorites that was my you know to have that sheep right right in your face and then the tiny one that's far away so that was that process but then the next book we did was um it was more I just got the text and I didn't have any input into that and then the next one was just a text that was a series of verses that's um, called this and that series of verses and so I put a whole visual narrative in that that she didn't have any input into that um, and then the last one ducks away it was kind of a combination of those things so it's unusual for men because normally and most children's picture book writers would be like this you would normally give your work over to an illustrator and the illustrator works with the editor and the editor kind of you know, brokers things between the two of you if there's anything needs to be done, but they're seen as two quite separate processes. But I'm I'm a bit more bolshy. So with this and that and the verses, I said, Oh, can I make some changes here? And can we change the order of the verses? And Mem, you know, is is she's she's great, you know, she just says, Yeah, that's fine and she never tries to interfere with the um illustration process at all. I remember going to um, where I first met you, that um, camp at the John Marsden thing, the mm. illustrator and writer's retreat, and the writers were saying how do I get the illustrator to do my vision of the book? And the illustrators were saying how do I get the writer to leave me alone to do my vision of the book? <laughs> and you think how does this relationship ever work? But Sally knows you just do both. <laughs> that's right. You just control the whole thing. Yeah. Which you've done as well. And I do both too. So yeah. that's a different process. And yeah. in a way it takes longer because you sort of you know, you you have an idea for a story and then you sort of write some lines and then you go, well, that could go in the pictures or does that go in the lines or... But, you know, it's nice having the... You know, then that book is totally yours and it's it's sort of a different... Different in a way. I'm not sure if people realise it's different. But, um, mm, it does feel very different because there is something lovely about a collaboration that it brings a whole wealth of ideas that you couldn't possibly come up with yourself. And so yeah. As an illustrator, you've got someone else's ideas to bounce from and you can also chat with the editor about that and they'll come up with a whole wealth of ideas or you can sit alone in your room and come up with your own stuff on your own but I quite like the collaboration. Yeah, yeah. and it's a framework as well because when you can just do anything about anything mm. and illustrate it in any way, there's sort of too much freedom yeah. for that sometimes whereas when you sort of then you go, oh why did they write that with that silly thing there, I'll have to draw, oh wow that's really fun drawing that. <laughs> you know. So that There must it, be a lot of trust involved in that as well depending on, on who you're working with that, that each of you will do it justice. I think the writer has to have more trust than the illustrator, but um, but probably it comes down. It's the publisher that likes to put the people together. So if anyone out there wants to write children's books, you don't need to find your own illustrator. Just send it off, and they because they do like to just match match texts with particular illustrators and particular styles and things. So there's that. I think you have to trust the publisher that they're going to pick a, an illustrator that's going to suit the work mm. and mm. generally i think they do a fairly good job mm. sally Rippen and uh, and uh, judy horacek are with us and um, talking about uh, uh, judy's new collection called random life but other things as well random issues and i, I say random is the word of the day because that's what the kids are saying these days if you notice yeah they everything's the random everything's random <laughs> <laughs> but i mean when you did um where is the green sheep did you know it was going to become the classic that it is i mean it's a very readable book i love reading that book and every household I know pretty much has it at home and it, it is an early gift for 
research for new Yeah, no, it's babies. a phenomenon. It's it really, is, actually. Um, the highest-selling picture book, I think. Last year was the yeah. highest-selling Australian picture book, mm. so it finally overtook Possum Magic, right. <laughs> um, which has been the highest-selling children's picture book for a long time. Also Mem Fox, so I don't think she minds which one's ahead. But, um, but we do, Judy. Well, yeah. We do. Well, I do, certainly. Um, and the... Um, well, Possum Magic, which is illustrated by Julie Reavers, and it's a very, very beautiful book. Um, that So Mem says that she's... I think she's done 30 books or 60 books, and she says that she'll be remembered for two books, and it was um, Possum Magic and Where is the Green Sheep? And now if someone comes up to her in the supermarket and says, I love your book, without identifying it, used to always they used to always mean Possum Magic, and now they've started meaning yeah. Where is the Green Sheep? Yeah, and it reminds me of when I used to work at a newspaper stand, and people would say, can I have the paper, please? And you'd have to look at them and go, which is the paper for you? Ooh, it's perfect. that's it's dangerous. very dangerous. Yeah. If you get it wrong, oh, it's bad. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's yeah. quite Melbourne Star Observer. What the? <laughs> well, speaking about the the role of publishers just before, but you chose to self publish this new book of yours, Random Life. What was the decision behind that? It was um, just because I. Well, most of my work, my life has been sort of had a DIY quality. So I decided to be a cartoonist, but nobody ever gave me a job as a cartoonist. I've had little gigs on newspapers and things, but I've also um, made fridge magnets and greeting cards and other things to sort of keep me in the business of being a cartoonist. So, so it's my ninth book, and publishing is sort of changing. And I thought, well, why don't I just see what happens? And you know, I was aware of crowdfunding campaigns like Possible, so I thought. I did it very incrementally. I thought, well, I'll just see what happens if I put it on crowdfunding and then, oh, okay, I've got all this money. All right, well, now I have to publish the book. Well, I'll just do not so many copies and I'll distribute it myself amongst the bookshops that I know that I'm familiar with through having done books and also through having distributed my cards. And then I thought, oh, well, I'll just get a publicist and then so it all just got bigger. But it, it um, And I just did it by sort of not making a complete plan of what I was going to do at mm. the beginning. I mean, and it's been... You know, and it's been really great, and it meant that the book is way longer than any proper publisher would um, would allow. You know, because I just I don't know, I was just going, oh well, I don't care about money. I just want a nice big fat book. So, um, and it looks beautiful. Often people associate self publishing with something that looks um, a little bit amateur, but it, yeah. it looks totally gorgeous. Yeah. So mm. I worked. You know, I've done a lot of books, so I'm very familiar with that. I worked with a designer. Um, who's a good friend of mine in Canberra, Fiona Edge, and I knew that, you know, I mean, she knows exactly how books have to happen. And also with Russ Radcliffe, who's a cartoon editor, he used to work at Scribe and he still freelance edits cartoon books. So, you know, I knew that I sort of got that professional support and, you know, we got the nice paper and the proper... You know, it's printed by the people who print most books in Australia, the um, Legare Press, so they do... Um, a lot of the children's book stuff and that that is still done in Australia they do a lot of that so I knew that they knew what they were doing as well and then I you know got a distributor um, so that I didn't have to be schlepping it into shops myself and saying yeah, yeah, take 10 on sale or return yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very difficult. I mean, you've called, you've, on the back it says it's horror check press. So does that mean others might be able to come out on horror check press as well? This might be a new thing. It was one of the things I said, oh, I'm self publishing this. And right near the end, I went, oh, it's got to have a publisher on it. What am I going to call it? And what's the logo going to be? How's someone going to kind of reference it if there's no pub? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So that, yeah, horror check press with a little woman with altitude in negative, um, a little figure stuck on there. So, you know, there might be others because it was, um, it was quite interesting to do. There's a children's book I've got, The Story of Growl. I'm considering getting, running a possible campaign because that's out of print now, but I think it's um, 
you know, I think it's a lovely book and there are people who still write and go, oh, can I get copies of that book because mm. it was so special in our family and growl gets in trouble for growling and then isn't allowed to growl and her then she growls and saves the day and it's a very standard children's book plot line but growl happens to be a little girl monster so you know it's a book that's got a strong female character and i think that there's still even in 2017 a need for children's books where you know it's not the girl just standing behind you know beside Mm -hmm. everything or watching the boy or you know she's the sort of main character and talking of strong children's book characters, I think we have to mention that it's day one of book week, so there'll be lots of parents who'll be dressing kids up as book characters. Going, what the hell? <laughs> There's a lot of green sheeps out there. I've had people emailing me already saying, do you have a Buster costume? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so what have you got? I know you've just come back from, you've had a residency in Papua at a school um, in Papua New Guinea and you've travelled through Iceland, but you're in Melbourne this week um, doing some school talks and also at the Melbourne Writers' Festival. Yes, yeah, so, um, and last week I was in Canberra doing some talks um, and or classes mm. and um, this week, um, so not so much book week, this stuff. I did have two weeks where in Papua New Guinea, so it's the third time we've gone, four of us go, and we give classes in schools in a, um, a fairly remote area near... Kokoda, so that people get off the plane at Popendetta, you know, either about to do an ultra marathon on the Kokoda track or, um, you know, us going into schools with a, you know, <laughs> a giant bags, full, full, not such giant bags, but incredibly heavy because they're just chock full with books and stuff. And it's just gorgeous working there and, and doing that because they have sort of nothing and a lot of the picture books that they have are really kind of daggy old things. So um, and we're coming and they don't normally see... Um, white people making quite such idiots of ourselves as we <laughs> do. I thought you were referring to the hikers then, but no, you mean... <laughs> no, the hikers are very loud. The, the, but so people run people run the track in three days and it takes you know nine mm. days to walk it or something. People, So they look incredibly fit. But on Sunday, yes, I'm doing a session at the Writers' Festival. This with is the 20, 20, 27th, sorry. 27th of yep. sun, Yeah, 27th at 10am with um, Kate Grenville and Leah Purcell and it's about the it's about longevity about having a long creative career long creative career <laughs> just, which is just you know sometimes i see stuff about emerging writers and you know special things that they get and i think well actually it's it's i mean it's hard for emerging writers but you've got a lot of stuff in your favor as opposed to you know after a couple of decades they're mm-hmm. going well i still want to do this how am i going to stick keep getting my work out there you know why has nobody given me this fabulously cushy job or some massive grant or something and just you know i still want to do this how do i how do i keep doing it and stay fresh and relevant and and notice because there is, it's true there's a, we're always looking for the next young thing aren't we the next thing the next thing so how do we stay relevant yeah mm. Not that we're so old, really. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, You've got some beautiful, um, uh, I suppose, what do you call that, when um, fans in um, Quentin Bryce and also a forward by um, John Clark in this particular book as well. And I I loved reading John Clark's um, forward. It's beautifully written. And there was, I mean, there's a lot in there. I think um, people will love reading what he has to write about um, Judy Horatek's work. But he did talk about that special relationship between a cartoon and the audience and it's interesting the way I I don't have it open I I can't remember his exact phrasing but I remember thinking that about first dog on the moon I think the first time when I 
read um, his work, I, I kind of didn't get it. And then I became one of his readers and then I started to get this relationship with yeah, the way you he get the language, I think. And they're like, yeah, there's something about that relationship with his work that maybe other people don't understand, the relationship you can have between a cartoonist and the, ca- and yeah, the reader. Yeah, I think a lot like that too. Like yeah. if you show someone from overseas Lunig's work, they're sort of like, well, what? and then, you know, we'll read some more and, you, you know, you'll sort of get that, you know, you... I don't. I don't even know what it is. I don't know how to it's describe it. I know John was intrigued by it. Yeah, yeah, yeah and that came, comes across. And I mean, did you when when you read what he had to write about your work? Do you feel like you have that special relationship with with your audience? I mean, you have an audience. They're there. They're waiting for your yeah, stuff. Yeah, I think. I mean, it was so interesting talking to him about it. And he's always. Um, He's obviously very interested in cartoons and he was, was very good friends with a number of cartoonists. And when he arrived from New Zealand way back, then um, he was, he's and sort of been interested in what they do and, um, and in the parallels with what he does, what he did. And, um, yeah, so I, th- I think there is a relationship with the audience. It was just funny because there's people who know my work really well and there's people who I've discovered the other day that only 10% of people compost. And thinking, well, actually, nearly everybody I know composts. So I go, well, who, it's only 10%. You know, it's this tiny it's this tiny amount. And they said, well, who are my fans? And, you know, there are people who really do love my work and say it's, it's so fantastic. And people you've helped me at this time or, or this cartoon I have on my wall because I use it here or I showed this cartoon to my therapist because I said this is what I'm talking about. <laughs> And I think that sort of there's 10% of composting people in a way. <laughs> I did love reading um, John's testimonial to you saying that you are an alternative fact of the most engaging and necessary yeah, wasn't kind. That a brilliant finishing line. I love that. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and well, said, yeah. Long may she reign. And then the book was at the printers, and, you know, he just so sadly left us, mm, yeah. um, which is a euphemism, but also, and I do feel left. I do feel like there's a such an important voice that we had and that is so sensible and a voice of such integrity. And it's, you know, it's tragic that he's not with us. And it meant that when the book, it just sort of created this bittersweet thing about my book as well, because, you know, it came back from the publishers, from the printers, and, you know, here's my self-published book, and thank you, John, for helping me, and thank you, Quentin Bryce, for helping me. And it's like, oh, but no, it's so sad mm. to see. So I haven't been able to reread his forward just mm-hmm. because mm. it's... Um, that and I'm terrified of finding a typo, but it's also <laughs> well, I've read it. There's no typo, oh, but really? I um, yeah, but I um, I do understand that sentiment when you just you know one day you'll read it again and mm. um, and remember all the beautiful things he's written about this work, um, this work. And um, congratulations again, and um, all the best with Horotech Press. Thank and, you. And um, go along and and see uh, Judy Horotech at the Melbourne Writers Festival this Sunday. Um, uh, it's going to be a, a really magic discussion, I think, uh, and. You've got all the details in front of you, I Dylan. Do indeed. I don't. It's uh, called Creative Women in Conversation with Kate Grenville and Leah Purcell, and of course Judy Horacek, who's joining us today, Sunday, August twenty seventh, ten a.m. Deakin Edge Federation Square. Costs uh, I think nineteen bucks concession, twenty two dollars full price, and you can head to the Melbourne Writers Festival website to make your booking. And uh, thank you very much, Sally Riffin, for coming in as always. And what are you doing this book week? We didn't actually ask you. Uh, lots and lots of schools. Doing some Writers Festival things next week too. Yeah, so um, look you out can for Sally. Find it online. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, you're not going to spook it. <laughs> no, she's not. She um, hasn't taken I notes. I haven't got it she in front of remember. me. Yeah. She's, you're as bad as I am. No <laughs> wonder we get on to day well. to day. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much as always. We'll catch you again in a, a month's time. And uh, yeah, all the best. I know I'm doing costumes all week with my kids at Correct. home, and it's a really big focal point. It really is. Yeah. So, so it should be kids' books. 
Yeah. It's all about them. Yeah. <laughs> um, all about the parade, though. Forget the books. It's all about the costume. <laughs> I know. It's fun. Um, and, yeah, I, I'm going to get the camera out. There's so many cute pics to be had. Um, thanks, Judy, for coming. Really great to have you on Triple R again. And um, all the best with this book. And uh, you should go out and buy it, Random Life, at um, all good bookstores. You'll be able to find it there by Judy Horacek. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.